0: Well, as we turn our time to the Word of God, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we once again thank you for this opportunity this morning to be in your Word. We thank you that in this country we can do this freely. We can open your Word. We can proclaim it for what it is, the truth that it is, and that you, by your sovereign grace, allow those whom you have chosen to hear it. To hear it with understanding ears and by the power of your Spirit, the power of grace you cause others to come to know Jesus Christ and know the richness of what it means to know you. So we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we can be together and once again unfold what you have for us. So use your spirit now upon us, cause it cause the, our hearts to resonate and to understand what you would have for us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you this morning to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. While you're doing that, I'll just make a comment about tonight. Russ asked how, many, how, many, how long will the series be in, in John on this whole new section of what I've entitled um, the final words for a saved people and, or instructions for a saved people. Well, I'll just say this. It's not going to end with that title until Jesus is on the cross in John's Gospel, so we're there for a little bit, for a little bit, I don't know how many parts that is, but who knows, we'll see what the Lord decides, well we are beginning this morning to look at the second section of chapter 6, we'll be focusing our attention on verses 15 to 23, or at least beginning our focus on those verses, but before we get to it, We need to begin our time this morning, as we have done in the past, by asking ourselves a question in light of what we have heard from this chapter up to this point. Here is what we need to ask ourselves, and this is not a trivial question, this is not a small thing, this is not something for us to quickly answer, but it is something for us to seriously ask ourselves, and here is the question, do we have? a complete understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith? Let me just repeat that for our own ears and emphasis. Do we have a complete understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith? In other words, do we truly understand the actual reality of our innocence from guilt before God through our actual union with Jesus Christ by faith. Now, we may be quick to answer that, and some may be even asking why is it necessary for us to actually be asking ourselves about that reality. It's important for us to ask us ourselves about that reality and about our understanding of that reality because if we truly understand all that it means to be unified with Christ, which is justification is, is, is part of all of that, if we truly understand what it means to be unified with Christ, which includes our justification, our innocence before God, our declaration by God of our innocence before Him, then we have with that understanding a sense of understanding of the doctrine of personal holiness. If we understand justification, then we have a sense of understanding of the doctrine of sanctification for here and now. In other words, how we are to live our Christian lives on this earth. And so I hope this morning that it is clear to you what is being suggested to all of us as we begin our time. Do I personally fully understand that to be actually justified before God is to be also guaranteed of our practical sanctification? To be justified before God also guarantees that I am being and will be practically sanctified. Do we realize that? Do we understand that? Do we think about that? To be declared innocent of our eternal guilt because of sin before God is to be also guaranteed of our being holy in practice. That is to say that those whom God justifies which is every true Christian those he also glorifies. Why? Because within that and in justification there is a sanctification that has happened and a sanctification that is happening and a sanctification that will finally show itself in total fruition by our being glorified. If as romans 8 will tell us that those whom god justified these he also glorified that's what romans chapter 8 verse 30 says and as hebrews 12:14 tells us that without pursuing sanctification no one will see the lord if those are true if those are true statements by god and they must be true statements by god or God is a liar, and since God cannot lie, those are true statements by God. Then, do we understand that to be justified is to be guaranteed to be sanctified in every way? As we walk, right now, as Christians on this earth. This is the argument that Paul brings before us in Romans chapter 6. This is the intent of why Paul has put these words here. This is the the drive that the Holy Spirit in leading Paul in writing the very Scripture words that we have. This is the mind of God. This is the argument of God. This is the grace of God for us to understand just what justification is and the guarantee that it is that God will and is sanctifying you if you truly know God. So if we understand what is meant by justification, then we understand that that means we are actually and presently united with Christ and that unity with Christ guarantees our complete deliverance from sin, past, future, and present. And it guarantees our final glorification. So in the mind of God, In the mind of God, our complete salvation, our complete transformation has already happened. You sit here today, and you still battle with sin, and yet in the mind of God, it is already complete. You have been justified. You have been glorified, Romans 8 tells us. Past tense realities. In the mind of God, it is a done deal. And now, in time, God created time, placed us in time, and in time, He is sanctifying us in every practice of life, if we know Jesus Christ. Because that is His will for His people. First. Thessalonians 4.3 says that it is His will that we be sanctified. Let me say it in as simple a way as I can. An understanding of justification always, I use that word deliberately, an understanding of justification always leads to a striving for holiness in living. That's the simplest way I can put it. An understanding of justification always leads to a striving of holy living here and now. Always. Now, if we understand what I am saying in this this morning, then we also understand, and we are thinking people, so I would assume that some of us are thinking this, if not all of us that there is an opposite implication to that reality. The opposite implication is this. As we begin our time in this passage this morning, if we are not aware that in Christ we are in a position through which we can resist every temptation and every sin that remains in our mortal body, if we do not understand that in Christ we have the ability to resist whatever is there by way of sinfulness and the temptations that the world throws about us, and that we can do that with a sense of greater confidence and with an ever-increasing victory over it, then we have yet to fully understand the doctrine of justification. If we don't understand that we in our justification have the ability in Christ through the power of the Spirit to resist any vestige of sin that has come our way or the temptations of the world around us, then we have yet to still understand justification. Because if we understand justification, it always leads to a striving for holiness it always leads to that because the one who understands justification rightly understands who they are in Christ. The one who understands justification rightly understands what they are in Christ. The Christian who understands justification rightly understands what they are to be doing under the power of their new owner, who is Christ. So so there is a great danger in misunderstanding justification. and We have been looking at this because Paul has been addressing this from the beginning of chapter 1 or of chapter 6. And we began this series, I told you there are two primary dangers that happen when we don't understand justification. Two primary dangers. One was that we can easily become an abuser of the grace of God. When we don't understand justification, we easily flow into this reality of being an abuser of grace. Paul began to address that in verse 1 of chapter 6 when he raised the question, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? There were objectors in Paul's day to the reality of justification by faith alone. They, They wanted to do it by their own efforts, some sense in which there was a level of morality by which God would accept them on some level just by their own efforts. And there are objectors even today of justification by faith alone. They are confused. Even some Christians, true Christians, absolutely, utterly confused about the reality of being justified. Now, we may not think in these kinds of terms, but we need to be reminded that there was a time when we lived under law. There was a time when you and I, when everybody lived under law. You may say, well, how can that be? I'm not a Jew. The Jews were given the law, you say. So how can you say, Pastor, that we all lived under the law? Well, remember what Paul said earlier in our study of Romans. Right? Let's just be reminded of that. Go back to chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2 for a moment. Notice, remember what Paul said in chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for that which you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. That's verse one. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But when you do you suppose this, O oh man, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and you do the same yourself, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Or Or do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and tolerance and patience and knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of the stubbornness and unrepentant heart that you have, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds to those who by perseverance are doing good, seek glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. And remember, we discussed that. That's not talking about work salvation. That's the proof of a life. And he says in verse 12, jump down to verse 12, or verse 11, there's no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without law will perish also without the law. He's talking about now the Mosaic law, the law that was given by God. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified for... When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, Do you see? There is a law, the reality, that every human being lives under. It doesn't matter if it's the the law given by God that God had given, that gave the, the Jewish people, that had the ceremonial laws and how to worship Him and all of these regulations and all of the things in order to that God would be satisfied with the worship because that's what the law shows, that to rightly honor God, we live according to what He says. But the Gentiles who did not have that even lived according to a sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong, a sense which God has written upon all our hearts. And so we must come to the understanding that it does not matter if it is written In a law book, like the Ten Commandments or law written in the heart of all people, we attempt to live according to a law of morality, a rule book, if you will. And if you're going to be justified by a rule book, if you're going to be declared innocent by the rule book according to the rule book, then you must never violate it at any point. You better be perfect. You better be perfect. Go back for a moment to Luke chapter 10 just to illustrate this point for us. Luke chapter 10, Jesus Christ, of course, has been ministering to the people for some time. He has sent out the disciples two by two at one point. They've come back. They've had such great results. They, the work of God was being done through them. And there were people who were following them on a regular basis. And in verse 29, Jesus always being tested by others. Verse 25, I'm sorry, says a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Here's Jesus having just taught, send out the 70, they come back, there's great reports about what God's doing, there's others in the crowd who are doubting typically, and a lawyer stands up. This is not a lawyer like we understand lawyers, this is a religious guy. This is the Sadducees. This is those who knew the law, knew the Mosaic law, knew the rituals for the Jews. He stands up to put Jesus to the test. And notice what he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? wording is very critical there what shall i do jesus says to him what's written in the law you know the law what's it say in other words if you want to be justified by the law what does the law require and he answers you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself and he said you've answered correctly do this and you will live all right, lawyer, you're so smart, you know the religious rules, you know the rights, you know the law so well, you want to be right, you want to have eternal life, go and live according to the law. Do it. So the lawyer, being a slick guy that he was, says, oh, wishing, notice what the text says in verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, Do you see. Let me just say something. The only justification that matters is a justification that comes from God, not from yourself lawyer trying to justify himself saying okay well just tell me what 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 are the nuances of the law that I have to actually do rightly? because there's so many different nuances people say well I do this I do what are the nuances who is my neighbor and of course we have following that the illustration that Jesus gives that we always go to when we want to help somebody on the side of the road and we have good Samaritan laws. we use that as some kind of moralistic teaching for helping one another. This is an illustration Jesus gives for illustrating to this man that you couldn't keep the law if you even wanted to on your best day. He does this illustration that the guy could not doubt. When you get down to verse 36, he says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into that robber's hands? Proved. Who proved it? Not who said they were a neighbor. Not who said, I love my neighbor as myself. Not who said, yeah, I follow the law. Who proved it? Who proved to do what the law actually said? And he says, the one who showed mercy. Jesus said, go and do the same. You see, Jesus wasn't preaching there that you could actually be saved by keeping the law and being perfect according to that. He was preaching there to open this guy's heart to the reality that there's no way you could ever do it. Because you already violated the law. You're a law violator from the very get-go. So what's the point? Go back to Romans chapter 6. What's the point? The point is that when we hear of the great news of the gospel, and that it is a gift of God's grace, that when someone comes and says to you, here's Jesus Christ, and here's your sin, and you're going to answer to a holy God, and the wrath of God abides on you, and if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you will be condemned forever. That's great news of the gospel, and that is a gift of God's grace to you. And you hear that those who are saved by that grace stand in grace right now. You stand enveloped in that grace, and that you are no longer for salvation purposes, bound to a law, bound to a sense of morality, bound to this attempt to try to justify yourself, you stand in grace. If grace superabounds where sin abounds, don't let your mind go to the place where many go and say, well, then I'll just sin so that the wonders of God's grace will be all the more seen. That's the first objection that is raised by those who misunderstand justification. If justification is the reality that the law came in, verse 20 of chapter 5, so that the transgression would increase. He's not saying so that sin would, that there would be more sin. He's saying so that the understanding would be that you are a sinner. The law came in to show you just how clear it was. Just like we saw in Luke chapter 10. Just how clear it is that you are a sinner. It is so clear. That's why the law came in. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned to death, even so, grace would reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, how ridiculous it is, Paul is saying, to even ask the question. How ridiculous it is to think that you can just go sinning. So that grace might increase. If we as Christians understand justification rightly. Then we understand that we are under a new power. We are under the power of grace. Not the power of sin. So there is no possible way to continually live sinfully. Why? Because the grace of God would never allow His power of grace, that power of grace. He would never allow the power of grace to be vanquished so that you could continually desire to live in sin. God would never do that. Why? You say, why wouldn't He do that? Because it is not who you are in Christ. That is not who you are. And knowing that That as a Christian, you are actually and intimately united with Christ by the grace of God completely reminds us that we died to sin completely, just like Christ did. And just as Christ lives to God, as Paul says here in Romans chapter 6, so ought we to consider ourselves, as he says in verse 11, to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. so Paul says in light of that understanding, verse 12, don't let sin reign. Don't let it reign. If sin is in your mortal bodies continuing, it's because you're letting it reign. Don't let it reign. You have the power to not let it reign. The reason you and I sin as Christians is not because we do not have the power to be holy. It is not because we don't have the power to do the right thing. To honor God in obedience. God commands us, be holy for I am holy. It is not because someone or something made us sin. it's not why we sin. God said, be holy for I am holy. That command would be the epitome of cruelty. To command us to do something He never equipped us to do. That would be the epitome of cruelty. But God is not cruel. We can be holy in practice because grace is our ruler. And the reason we sin is because in those moments of sinning, in those moments when we we disobey, we have forgotten who we are in Christ. And so you know what we do? We offer ourselves to sin as a tool for unholiness. Verse 13 tells us that. Verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You see what happens? We have forgotten what it means to be justified. In that moment, we, we are easy targets and we easily become abusers of the grace of God found in and through our justification. And then we hear these words from Paul in verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. In light of that truth, there's a second potential danger that lurks. The first danger is becoming a grace abuser. What's the second danger? The second danger is becoming antinomian. Antinomian. Antinomian, without law. That's, That's what the word means. Antinomian. Antinomos in the original language. Antinomian, without law. As a Christian, we have a danger of becoming grace abusers if we don't understand justification on one side and antinomian on the other side, anti-law on the other side. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, we're not under law, we're under grace? Maybe you've even repeated that. The danger of not understanding justification rightly is that we can easily become those kinds of people who claim To know Jesus Christ by faith. But we go around saying that the law of God doesn't matter anymore to us. In fact, we go around living as if the law of God doesn't matter to us anymore. In other words, in the words of the Apostle Paul in verse 15, the danger is stated in another question. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? You see, the first question was, are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? Now he asks the second question in verse 15. Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Paul's making the same general point, except now the objection is not the abuse of grace. The objection now is to ignore the law. Ignore the law. Paul answers in a similar fashion to the overall question. He says, absolutely not. May it never be. Absolutely not. In other words, just asking the question shows an ignorance in understanding justification and what it really means. Just like in verse 1, when he asks the question, shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? No, no. Just asking the question shows an ignorance of an understanding of justification. Just asking the question shows an ignorance of an understanding of justification and what it really means. And so Paul begins once again in the following verses to dismantle that foolish conclusion. And I'll just simply summarize his entire argument in this way as we begin. When you are justified by God, by grace, through faith in Christ, while it is true that you are free from the law as an attempted way of justifying yourself, you're free from that. You are not free from the law of Christ. When you are justified by God through faith in Christ, you are free from the law of trying to justify yourself, which never works. No one will be justified by the law. But you are not free from the law of Christ, but rather you are freed up under the law of Christ. You're freed up under the law of Christ. Let me... Just remind us again of this principle from the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian believers who were, for all intent and purposes, antinomian in their Christian practice. They were antinomian, anti-law. Go back to 1 Corinthians, or over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Maybe you remember some of this from our study of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Of course, they're accusing Paul of doing what he does in order to gain favor with people, that he's doing it all for himself, that it's all about Paul. And they're even accusing Paul of taking money from the people who he's preached to in order to just gain his own uh, greater uh, status. And Paul says, listen, am I not free? Verse 1 of chapter 9, am I not free? I mean, am am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? By the way, that's the qualification for an apostle. People say today, oh, I'm an apostle. No, you're not. You didn't see the risen Lord. Are you not my work in the Lord? Talking about the Corinthian church. Are you not my work in the Lord? If If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Don't we have the right to eat and drink? In other words, don't I have freedom under Christ, not being under the law, to go about my life and just live my life? Don't I not have the right to take along even a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? In other words, people were saying, oh, you don't work. You you just take from other people. Who at times serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and doesn't use the milk of the flock? He said, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law also say these things? Do You see, now he gets into it. You want to say you're free of the law? Well, here's what the law says. Doesn't the law even say what I'm talking about? For isn't it written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing? God isn't concerned about oxen, is he? In other words, that commandment's not for the cow. It's for the worker. God's not concerned about the cow. Or is he speaking altogether for our sakes? Yes, he says, for our sakes it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope. The threshman ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crop. So if we sowed spiritual things to you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, Do we not more? Nevertheless, we didn't use that right. He says, even though it was a right, we didn't exercise it. In other words, even though I was free to it, I limited my freedom. I limited my freedom. Why? Why? We didn't have that right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know? That those who performed sacred services ate the food of the temple attended regular services at the altar to share in the altar. Right? He says, look, they even get their food from that. We're serving you. We ought to be able to receive something. He says, but notice verse 50, I have used none of these things. Those are all freedoms to me in Christ. Those are all things that are logical. Even by the law's plan, they're something I should have. But I didn't use any of them. Why? I'm not writing these things so that it will be done. In my case, it would be better for me to have to die than to have any man make a boast and an empty one about me. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about. I'm under compulsion to do that. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. In other words, it doesn't matter to me whether you give me something or not, even though you're required to to care for me. None of that matters to me. I just preach the gospel. God deals with the rest of it. But if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. So when I preach the gospel, he says, what is my reward? When I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Now, this is where I was getting to. All of that was just build up. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all men so that I might win more. Paul says, look, while I don't have to follow the law by way of a ceremonial justifying, in other words, I'm not justified by that, He said, I willingly come under some of those things for the sake of winning people. To the Jews, I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, I went under the law, that I might, not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. Do you see what Paul's saying? He says, listen, it's not as if I'm not under a law. I'm under the law. I'm just not under the law the way you think we should be under the law. I'm not under the law for justification purposes. That's taken care of only in Christ. But I am under the law for obedience purposes. I am under it for that. Chapter 7 and verse 22 of that same same book. Paul says, for he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You see, somebody owns you. doesn't matter which side of salvation you're on, you're owned. So before salvation, the law was a slave master. It was a slave master. And we could not fulfill it perfectly even though we tried and yet we didn't desire to fulfill it perfectly but now by grace we are under the law of Christ Paul says we are under the law of Christ Christ is our slave master and we live under the rule of his grace we live under his law and so Paul is saying it's absurd. Back in Romans chapter 6, verse 15, it is absurd to think that you are no longer under law. It's an absolute absurdity. As a Christian, you cannot think like that. All that has changed is who owns you. That's what's changed. Who owns you? The purpose of the gospel is to free you to the law of Christ. So in verses 16 through 23 of Romans chapter 6, Paul deals with this second danger of antinomianism. He begins to deal with this anti law philosophy. So let me just give us as an outline so that we can hang our thoughts on these things as we work our way through this argument. Dealing with this whole reality of antinomianism, it's dealt with first as a general principle. Verse 16, Paul just gives a general common sense argument. And then in the second thing he does is he lays out a, a particular application of that general principle to us as Christians in our daily lives in verses 17 and 18. He says, this is the application of this general principle for you as a Christian. And then third, he begins to appeal in a general way, a general appeal in light of his argument. Verses 19 through 22. Then in verse 23, he just summarizes it all with that very familiar verse we all know. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's begin to look at these together. With the desire, with the desire, with the hope, with the prayer that we might fully understand our justification so that we would live holy in practice. Paul says in verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And he answers it with the general principle of verse 16. Do you not know? That when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Now you see from Paul's words that there is no special thing that happens as this general principle is laid out. There's no... It's just a general truth. He's not speaking from the spiritual side of things, saying, well, here's a spiritual truth. I know you can't understand it because you're not saved, or you will understand it. This is just a general principle, a general truth. Whatever you present yourself to by way of personhood, by way of your emotions, by way of your intellect, by way of your actions, by way of your words, whatever you present yourself to, here's the general principle. You are a slave to it. You are a slave to it. You don't need to understand Christianity to understand that general principle. That is the general principle. Whoever and whatever you offer yourself up to, in order to be used by them or by it as their tool, you are a slave to that master. That's the principle. Simple. Simple general principle. Whatever you give yourself to, you are a slave of it. You have to get that in your mind. You have to get that in your understanding. Get that into your own human makeup. Now, there are a couple of terms here that we need to make sure we understand. One is sin. One is sin because the question is, shall we sin? He said that in verse 1. We didn't really highlight it, but I want to say it here. I I didn't highlight it in verse 1 because he, he, he gives some words that kind of elucidate what he's meaning there by the term sin. Are we to continue in sin? Here he uses the word again. Are we to sin? Shall we sin? And what Paul means by sin is a willful, persistent sin. Willful, persistent sin. In other words, a continual state of sin with no care to it being sin. You understand what I'm saying? continual, persistent sinning without a care. We might even call it a steadfastness in a life of sin. You're dissatisfied with it. It's okay. So He's not talking about you and I sinning and that we must be perfect in practice. He's not saying that. We know this side of heaven, that's impossible, right? I mean, just look in the mirror. You know you're a sinner. You just look at your actions, your words, your your thoughts. You know you're a sinner. We sin. But the issue that Paul is dealing with here is what happens within us and what do we do about it when we do sin? That's what Paul's dealing with. The antinomian says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I do. You see, Paul is speaking about someone who is claiming to know Christ, and yet they live as if. Sin doesn't matter. They claim to know Christ. They claim to have a relationship with Christ. And yet they live as if sin doesn't matter. It doesn't bother their conscience at all. After all, they say, I'm not under law. I'm under grace. Shall we be in that state? Paul says. That's what Paul is addressing. It's the same thing that John says in 1 John chapter 3. John says, if you say you have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, continue this life of of unfettered sin without any sense in your conscience that it's wrong, without any care that it's wrong, if you continue to do that, John says it with some more pointed words. He says, if you say you know Jesus and you walk in darkness, you are a liar. And the truth isn't in you. person who is born of God, John says, chapter 3, verse 8 and 9 in 1 John, does not go on living or remaining in a state of, and condition of sinning. They don't. So the very suggestion, Paul is intimating here, the very suggestion that someone who claims Christ go about living in a way that is antithetical to what Scripture teaches about Christian living continually, with no thought of it at all, no care, even though they've been challenged. Paul implies here that that truth is so obvious to us as Christians that that can't happen. You cannot, It's so obvious to us as Christians, to anybody who knows the Scriptures at all, that there cannot be a continually, without any concern for their sin at all, someone who claims Christ and truly be saved who continues to do that. Impossible. Notice how he starts verse sixteen. Don't you know? Do you not know? In other words, this is just a common sense general principle. It's common sense. It's common to anyone's general logic. Don't I don't even need to argue? Paul saying I don't even need to argue from a spiritual side of things. It's ridiculous. It's a it's a ridiculous kind of question to even be asking this. It's simple logic. You cannot be slaves to two owners at one time. That's the idea. Impossible. Verse 16, he says that, Don't you know that when you present yourself to someone as a slave for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in death. Righteousness. The implication is you cannot be a slave of both at the same time. Whoever you present yourself to, for service, for obedience to them, you are their slave. They own you. The word slave should not be offensive to our ears. We're not talking about slavery that we've had in our country whereby it was just human trafficking. We're not talking about that. What Paul is referring to here is the idea of of an indentured servant, really, idea. Someone who has been bought, but they're an indentured one. Someone who even has been freed, slaves even in ancient times could work for their freedom. Someone who's been freed and yet wants to remain under the rule of the master. We need to get that in our hearts. It's not all that complicated. What we have to have in our minds is the idea that you cannot be the slave of two masters. You cannot. Whoever you are obeying is your slave owner at that time. And in the case of us as Christians, if we offer ourselves to sin as a tool, remember it's a choice, remember you're not to present yourselves, stop Letting sin reign, we present ourselves as a tool. As Christians, that's what we have the power to do. We present ourselves. The unsaved have no choice. They that's what they do because there's nothing else in them. They always respond according to their nature. We have a new nature. We have Christ. We can do what is right. And yet there are times when we make a choice. And sadly, we choose the wrong thing. We choose to sin. We choose to go after the temptation. We choose to go back to the old master called sin. And What we have done is ignored and even forgotten who our new master is. All that we have in him has been forgotten. And so our obedience to sin brings all the pain, all the struggle, all the difficulty in life. Whereas obedience to the law of Christ brings righteousness, brings practical holiness. So think about it with me as we think about this. We are always under one law or another. We're always under one law or another. That's what is implied by the word obedience here. Right? You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience. What are we obeying? We are obeying law. We are obeying whatever the Master says. What the Master says is the law, either the law of sin or the law of Christ. And it's impossible for us to serve both at the same time. You are a slave of one, and one is Whom you are obeying, whoever that is at the time. So this principle has to be understood about our living, practically. When I sin, in the moment that I'm sinning, I'm not a victim. I'm not a victim of the circumstances. I'm not a victim of those around me. I'm not a victim of what's going on. I'm not a victim of my upbringing. I'm not a victim of any of those things. Those things certainly can have influence, but I'm not a victim of any of those things. When I am sinning, I am presenting myself as a willing slave of whatever power I'm obeying. Listen, there are only two ultimate powers. Only two slave owners. One is sin. Notice how Paul puts it. One is sin. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death. What's the other one? Or of obedience. Only two slave owners. One is sin. One is obedience. We are slaves of the one whom we obey, either slave of sin or slave of obedience. So, What are you going to obey? Are you going to obey sin or are you going to obey obedience? We don't normally talk of obedience like that. Obedience is normally not a noun for us. It's usually a verb. It's an action word. And yet Paul describes obedience here as a noun. A slave owner. Equated with Christ. Christ is the quintessential one of obedience. Christ never disobeyed. And each of the slave owners produced something. Sin produces death, you notice. Obedience produces what? Righteousness. I'm sure in your mind when I said we are a slave of sin or a slave of, some of your minds said righteousness. Yes, except that's the product of obedience. Holy living. In other words, you are either under the reign of sin or you are under the reign of obedience, which is equated with what we are under the reign of, which is grace every moment. One leads to death, pain, struggles, Not ultimate eternal death for the Christian, but certainly trouble in your life. Listen, God is not going to allow you to sin if you're His child without chastening you. You cannot go on sinning without God's hand upon you. God will not allow it. It is not a good place to be in the hand of God as a disobedient child. There is pain, there is struggle, there is difficulty. Obedience leads to righteousness. and The outcome of that is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So there's no middle, there's no neutral, there's no middle position. You are under one or the other. These are the two masters, and they are so opposite, they never mix. They never mix. I was reading this week, one commentator put it this way, quote, The difference between sin and obedience is the difference between the devil and God. It's the difference between heaven and hell, between lawlessness and rebellion on the one side and holiness, righteousness, and the truth of God on the other side. Error is not truth. Truth is not error. The two cannot mix. The two will never mix. And so the implication is this. You cannot be the slave of two masters. You cannot be the slave of two masters. You cannot go on sinning because you're not under law. But under grace, you can't do that. You're a slave to that if you are. If you do that, you show yourself to be who you really are, which is not saved at all. You can't be the slave of two masters. You cannot be the slave of grace and the slave of sin. It's completely impossible. Why? Because they're mutually exclusive. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24? No one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That was the problem, pursuing of wealth at that time for the sake of their own lives. You can't can't have that. You cannot have God. This goes back all the way to the first commandment. There shall be no other gods beside me. You know why God was so angry with Israel all the time? Uh, Loved Israel, brought, going to one day bring Israel back as a people, and yet throughout the Old Testament, you read it over and over again, because you stopped worshiping me and you worshiped idols, You kept going after other gods. I am the true God. I am the one God. I'm the only God. I'm the creator God. I'm the one who chose you. I'm the one who brought you out. I am the God. Why is it you keep going after other gods? Same thing Jesus was saying in Matthew 6. You can't serve two gods. You can't serve two masters impossible to serve complete opposites at the same time. You can't do it. So here's what I want us to go away with this morning. Here's what I want us to go away with. Every day, every hour, with our attitudes, with our words, with our actions, We are loudly proclaiming by what we do, by how we live, we are loudly proclaiming who our master is at that moment. Every day, every hour, every minute, every week, every year, since the day that God graciously saved you, you are proclaiming in every moment who your master is in that moment. So, you show me a person who claims Christ but has no issue with sinning? You show me a person like that? And I'll show you a person who is a professor of Christ only, but not a possessor of Christ. A good tree cannot continually bring forth bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree bring forth continually good fruit. It is impossible. Impossible. And Paul says, and such were some of you. I love that. Such were some of us. And the beauty is we'll get to that next time. Because that's where he starts in verse 17. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for our time this morning. The richness of your word. I trust these things are clear in the minds and hearts of your people. That the challenge of these things as they live their practical life before you in your eyes, before those, their Christian brothers and sisters, before the world, that it would be a reflection of the reality that they are serving you, honoring you, obeying you, that obedience is their master, that we as your people would desire every day, every minute, every hour, reflect Jesus Christ live under the law of Christ knowing that we gain nothing before you by way of justification but rather because we are justified we have the ability now to do the right thing to live according to the law of Christ that you might be honored in it all and others would see Christ in us thank you for these things Help us this week to apply them to our lives and hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.